Chapter twenty seven of the Jesuits in North America. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Jesuits in North America in the Seventeenth Century by Francis Parkman. Chapter twenty seven, sixteen forty nine. Ruin of the Hurons. More than eight months had passed since the catastrophe of St. Joseph. The winter was over and that dreariest of seasons had come, the churlish forerunner of spring. Around Sainte-Marie the forests were grey and bare, and in the cornfields the oozy, half-thawed soil, studded with the sodden stalks of the last autumn's harvest, showed itself in patches through the melting snow. At nine o'clock on the morning of the 16th of March, the priests saw a heavy smoke rising over the naked forest towards the southeast, about three miles distant. They looked at each other in dismay. The Iroquois! They are burning Saint-Louis! Flames mingled with the smoke, and as they stood gazing, two Christian Hurons came, breathless and aghast, from the burning town. Their worst fear was realized. The Iroquois were there, but where were the priests of the mission, Brebeuf and Lalmont? Late in the autumn, a thousand Iroquois, chiefly Senecas and Mohawks, had taken the war-path for the Hurons. They had been all winter in the forests, hunting for subsistence, and moving at their leisure toward their prey. The destruction of the two towns of the mission of St. Joseph had left a wide gap, and in the middle of March they entered the heart of the Huron country, undiscovered. Common vigilance and common sense would have averted the calamities that followed, but the Hurons were like a doomed people, stupefied, sunk in dejection, fearing everything, yet taking no measures for defense. They could easily have met the invaders with double their force, but the besotted warriors lay idle in their towns, or hunted at leisure in distant forests, nor could the Jesuits, by counsel or exhortation, rouse them to face the danger. Before daylight of the 16th, the invaders approached St. Ignace, which, with St. Louis and three other towns, formed the mission of the same name. They reconnoitred the place in the darkness. It was defended on three sides by a deep ravine, and further strengthened by palisades fifteen or sixteen feet high, planted under the direction of the Jesuits. On the fourth side it was protected by palisades alone, and these were left, as usual, unguarded. This was not from a sense of security, for the greater part of the population had abandoned the town, thinking it too much exposed to the enemy, and there remained only about four hundred, chiefly women, children, and old men, whose infatuated defenders were absent hunting, or on futile scalping parties against the Iroquois. It was just before dawn, when a yell, as of a legion of devils, startled the wretched inhabitants from their sleep, and the Iroquois, bursting in upon them, cut them down with knives and hatchets, killing many, and reserving the rest for a worse fate. They had entered by the weakest side, on the other sides there was no exit, and only three Hurons escaped. The whole was the work of a few minutes. The Iroquois left a guard to hold the town, and secure the retreat of the main body in case of a reverse, then, smearing their faces with blood, after their ghastly custom, they rushed, in the dim light of the early dawn, towards Saint-Louis, about a league distant. The three fugitives had fled, half-naked, through the forest, for the same point, which they reached about sunrise, yelling the alarm. The number of inhabitants here was less, at this time, than seven hundred, and of these, all who had strength to escape, excepting about eighty warriors, made in wild terror for a place of safety. Many of the old, sick, and decrepit were left perforce in the lodges. The warriors, ignorant of the strength of the assailants, 
sang their war-songs, and resolved to hold the place to the last. It had not the natural strength of St. Ignace, but, like it, was surrounded by palisades. Here were the two Jesuits, Brebeuf and Lamont. Brebeuf's converts entreated him to escape with them, but the Norman zealot, bold scion of a warlike stock, had no thought of flight. His post was in the teeth of danger, to cheer on those who fought, and open heaven to those who fell. His colleague, slight of frame and frail of constitution, trembled despite himself, but deep enthusiasm mastered the weakness of nature, and he too refused to fly. Scarcely had the sun risen, and scarcely were the fugitives gone, when like a troop of tigers the Iroquois rushed to the assault. Yell echoed yell, and shot answered shot. The Hurons, brought to bay, fought with the utmost desperation, and with arrows, stones, and the few guns they had, killed thirty of their assailants, and wounded many more. Twice the Iroquois recoiled, and twice renewed the attack with unabated ferocity. They swarmed at the foot of the palisades, and hacked at them with their hatchets, till they had cut them through at several different points. For a time there was a deadly fight at these breaches. Here were the two priests, promising heaven to those who died for their faith, one giving baptism and the other absolution. At length the Iroquois broke in, and captured all the surviving defenders, the Jesuits among the rest. They set the town on fire, and the helpless wretches who had remained, unable to fly, were consumed in their burning dwellings. Next they fell upon Brebeuf and Lamont, stripped them, bound them fast, and led them, with the other prisoners, back to St. Ignace, where all turned out to wreak their fury on the two priests, beating them savagely with sticks and clubs as they drove them into the town. At present there was no time for further torture, for there was work in hand. The victors divided themselves into several bands, to burn the neighboring villages and hunt their flying inhabitants. In the flush of their triumph they meditated a bolder enterprise, and in the afternoon their chiefs sent small parties to reconnoitre St. Marie, with a view to attacking it on the next day. Meanwhile the fugitives of St. Louis, joined by other bands as terrified and as helpless as they, were struggling through the soft snow which clogged the forest towards Lake Huron, where the treacherous ice of spring was still unmelted. One fear expelled another. They ventured upon it, and pushed forward all that day and all the following night, shivering and famished, to find refuge in the towns of the Tobacco Nation. Here, when they arrived, they spread a universal panic. Ragno, Bressigny, and their companions waited in suspense at Saint-Marie. On the one hand they trembled for Brebeuf and Lamont, on the other they looked hourly for an attack, and when, at evening, they saw the Iroquois scouts prowling along the edge of the bordering forest, their fears were confirmed. They had with them about forty Frenchmen, well armed, but their palisades and wooden buildings were not fireproof, and they had learned from fugitives the number and ferocity of the invaders. They stood guard all night, praying to the saints, and above all to their great patron, St. Joseph, whose festival was close at hand. In the morning they were somewhat relieved by the arrival of about three hundred Huron warriors, chiefly converts from La Concepcion and St. Madeleine, tolerably well armed and full of fight. They were expecting others to join them, and meanwhile, dividing into several bands, they took post by the passes of the neighboring forest, hoping to waylay parties of the enemy. Their expectation was fulfilled, for at this time two hundred of the Iroquois were making their way from St. Ignace, in advance of the main body, to begin the attack on St. Marie. They fell in with a band of Hurons, set upon them, 
killed many, drove the rest to headlong flight, and as they plunged in terror through the snow, chased them within sight of St. Marie. The other Hurons, hearing the yells and firing, went to the rescue, and attacked so fiercely that the Iroquois in turn were routed, and ran for shelter to St. Louis, followed closely by the victors. The houses of the town had been burned, but the palisade around them was still standing, though breached and broken. The Iroquois rushed in, but the Hurons were at their heels. Many of the fugitives were captured, the rest killed or put to utter rout, and the triumphant Hurons remained masters of the place. The Iroquois who escaped fled to St. Ignace. Here, or on the way thither, they found the main body of the invaders, and when they heard of the disaster, the whole swarm, beside themselves with rage, turned towards St. Louis to take their revenge. Now ensued one of the most furious Indian battles on record. The Hurons within the palisade did not much exceed a hundred and fifty, for many had been killed or disabled, and many, perhaps, had straggled away. Most of their enemies had guns, while they had but few. Their weapons were bows and arrows, war-clubs, hatchets, and knives, and of these they made good use, sallying repeatedly, fighting like devils, and driving back their assailants again and again. There are times when the Indian warrior forgets his cautious maxims, and throws himself into battle with a mad and reckless ferocity. The desperation of one party, and the fierce courage of both, kept up the fight after the day had closed, and the scout from St. Marie, as he bent, listening under the gloom of the pines, heard far into the night the howl of battle rising from the darkened forest. The principal chief of the Iroquois was severely wounded, and nearly a hundred of their warriors were killed on the spot. When at length their numbers and persistent fury prevailed, their only prize was some twenty Huron warriors, spent with fatigue and faint with loss of blood. The rest lay dead around the shattered palisades which they had so valiantly defended. Fatuity, not cowardice, was the ruin of the Huron nation. The lamps burned all night at St. Marie, and its defenders stood watching till daylight, musket in hand. The Jesuits prayed without ceasing, and St. Joseph was besieged with invocations. Those of us who were priests, writes Ragnaud, each made a vow to say a mass in his honor for every month, for the space of a year, and all the rest bound themselves by vows to diverse penances. The expected onslaught did not take place. Not an Iroquois appeared. Their victory had been bought too dear, and they had no stomach for more fighting. All the next day, the 18th, a stillness, like the dead lull of a tempest, followed the turmoil of yesterday, as if, says the Father Superior, the country were waiting, palsied with fright for some new disaster. On the following day, the journalist fails not to mention that it was the festival of St. Joseph, Indians came in with tidings that a panic had seized the Iroquois camp, that the chiefs could not control it, and that the whole body of invaders was retreating in disorder, possessed with a vague terror that the Hurons were upon them in force. They had found time, however, for an act of atrocious cruelty. They planted stakes in the bark houses of St. Ignace, and bound to them those of their prisoners whom they meant to sacrifice, male and female, from old age to infancy, husbands, mothers, and children, side by side. Then, as they retreated, they set the town on fire, and laughed with savage glee at the shrieks of anguish that rose from the blazing dwellings. They loaded the rest of their prisoners with their baggage and plunder, and drove them through the forest southward, braining with their hatchets any who gave out on the march. An old woman, who had escaped out of the midst of the flames of St. Ignace, made her way to St. Michel, 
a large town not far from the desolate site of St. Joseph. Here she found about seven hundred Huron warriors, hastily mustered. She set them on the track of the retreating Iroquois, and they took up the chase, but evidently with no great eagerness to overtake their dangerous enemy, well armed as he was with Dutch guns, while they had little beside their bow and arrows. They found as they advanced the dead bodies of prisoners tomahawked on the march, and others bound fast to trees and half burned by the faggots piled hastily around them. The Iroquois pushed forward with such headlong speed that the pursuers could not or would not overtake them, and after two days they gave over the attempt. End of chapter 27